Hi, this is Father Aaron from the Dungeon Minister, and you're listening to Tale of the Manticore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here, you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. From the beginning to the end, Chapter 18 details the PC's scheme to strike a blow against Captain Bellock and the authorities of Silmoral. Everyone has their part to play, but we begin with Yellowfly, who visits the locksmith and learns that they will have just enough money to pull off the caper. When it's over, they'll be essentially broke. Phase two of the plan happens the next day, the third and final day of executions. A few hours before the spectacle begins, Catsbane, disguised as a messenger from his old master, Xavion the Red, visits the tower of the Archmages at Whitestone Castle. He's after something very specific, a creature called a Ferum Mandukare, before he collects the creature, he must first deal with the apprentice who replaced him, but this is easily done. Catsbane tricks her into sniffing sleeping dust. With her out of the way, Catsbane can complete his mission. Before he does so, he decides on impulse to have a poke through Carrick's private chambers on the top level. Although he deactivates a magical trap along the way, Catsbane fears for the defenses and mostly leaves his old master's chambers alone. All he can safely take is a note with a wax seal. Later, when he gets the chance, he'll read it, but not now. He needs to move quickly, so he returns to the laboratory and, using a potion of diminution on the creature, leaves the place with the Ferrum Mandicare, now shrunken to a few inches long, in his shoulder bag. He meets Shawnee at the Cernan Gate. She is posing as the Cider Girl, and he approaches her to hand off his strange cargo. They manage this right under the guards' noses, and then, while Catsbane heads off toward the Tower of Xavion the Red, Shawnee goes in the other direction, towards Burton Square. The final link in the chain is Cole. He collects the Ferro Mandicari from Shane's pushcart and now holds it in a cup with his big hand covering the top. He pushes and shoves through the crowd, making his way to the front row where he hopes to complete his team's plan. Unfortunately, the dice gods are fickle and something goes wrong along the way. Yellowfly spent a lot of money so that Catsbane's plan would have the greatest possible impact, and I'm sure that some of you have already figured out what that plan is. The creature known to Catsbane as a Ferrum Manducare is also known as a Rust Monster. It's a magical beast that looks something like a cockroach, except that it's normally the size of a large dog. Anything made of metal that it touches, rusts. The plan was for Cole to toss the magically shrunken creature into the packed mass of guards. It was Yellowfly's idea to bribe one of the guards' his girlfriends and add a little misinformation to the mix. This girlfriend is loyal to the church, and she's happy to help them strike a blow, telling her boyfriend that she overheard someone brag about a planned rescue mission to come from behind the stage, and right before the first head rolled would cause the guards to group together if the information traveled the way they hoped. 
Successfully tricking the guards to group together would allow the rust monster to cause even more damage, an incredible amount of damage. That was the companion's part of the plan. If they were successful, the church had arranged for a second group of guild members to take action. Yellowfly had no idea what their job was going to be, but he assumed it involved saving some or all of the prisoners. Because of the way the guild was organized, Yellowfly couldn't be sure, but he suspected that one of the prisoners really was a high-ranking church member. It was unlikely, he reasoned, that they would go to such trouble to save the necks of a handful of civilians, whether they were innocent or not. This means that, as Cole reaches the front row of the crowd at the execution, there are other church plants present very nearby, waiting for the signal, which in this case is total chaos. Of course, in the last episode, I randomly determined that part of the plan would fail. <laughs> I was really bummed, not to mention completely stumped about what that failure might look like. So I did what I usually do. I made a table. Rolling a d6, I'd consult a list of possible complications that ranged from minor wrinkle to major disruption. The list I came up with went like this. A one on the die, the king does not show up to preside over the hoped for debacle. A two, the misinformation is not transmitted properly and the two phalanxes do not come together. Three, Sean A is recognized by someone, but probably not by a guard as they're almost all concentrated by the stage. Four, Cole is challenged by a drunk or someone with a chip on their shoulder. Five, someone bumps into Cole and the rust monster escapes. That would be bad. Six, and this is probably the worst one of all, Something happens to delay Cole or he loses track of time and the diminution potion wears off before he can launch the cup into the assembled guards. But you know what? Very soon after I came up with that list, I decided not to use it because I'd had a better idea. Chapter 19, Part 1, Day 53, Afternoon, Party Status, Sean A, 13 of 13 hit points, Cole, 12 of 12. Just then, the magistrate swung his bell and the first knell peeled out. Several things happened at once. Firstly, and clearly in response to the bell as a signal, the left and right phalanxes, led by Belloc and Sinwan respectively, came together. They pressed in at either side of the stage and filled in behind it too, tightly surrounding it on three sides with a thicket of spears and mail. Now only the front of the stage was unguarded, of course, anything trying to escape from there would have to somehow get through a crowd of hundreds. That said, as of yet, there were no prisoners on stage. Neither was their headsman. The magistrate was there alone. He swung his bell some more, wearing an obsequious smile and bowing to the left, center, and right sections of the crowd. Oh yay, oh yay! He called merrily, with his bell still ringing. Once every eye was upon him, he stopped and raised his free hand to quiet the excited audience. A hush passed through the crowd like a wave while the magistrate waited. Only when Burton Square was silent did he continue, addressing the multitudinous crowd as one. My good people of Silmaril, we have borne witness to the king's justice these past two days, while eight of the parasites that have clung leech-like to our beautiful city will torn free of the body politic and crushed. But still our fair city bleeds. The crowd muttered and gasped, as if they were watching some drama unfolding at a theater. We have unwittingly propped up a criminal organization, supported it, held it up. When in the past we have tried to catch these villains, they have always slipped away, just as slippery as oil. He paused here and smiled his showman's smile. And so, it is a fitting punishment that they shall face today, my friends. 
Cole was in the front row, growing more nervous by the moment. He was sure he was supposed to have thrown the creature into the soldiers' midst by now, but he also knew the plan relied on their being prisoners on stage. He figured he could wait only a few more minutes before he would be forced to act, but he didn't need to wait, as it turned out. With the magistrate's speech complete, a pair of workers climbed onto the stage, carefully carrying a strange contraption. It was a kind of metal trough with stilt-like legs at each corner, extremely top-heavy and some dozen feet in height. They set it down in the center of the stage and stood back a few steps, looking happy to put some distance between the apparatus and themselves. A heady smell came from the trough, and Cole knew what it was. Boiling oil. This was the kind of thing that could be found among the defenses at Whitestone Castle, ready to be poured through murder holes on the heads of would-be invaders. For those in the crowd who were too far away to smell it, a telltale haze of distorted air flexed and wobbled over the top of the trough. Its bottom was a trapdoor sealed by a pin on each side. A few smoking drops of oil had leaked from the seal and dripped, hissing, to the stage floor. Bring the prisoners, commanded the magistrate. Upon his word, five prisoners were led through the phalanx of guards and then upon the stage. They were blindfolded, though their hands were free. Each carried a ten-foot pole, which, when they were lined up under the trough, they were made to hold aloft, with the butt off the ground and the tip pushed against the metal trapdoor. For a brief moment, the magistrate's false smile disappeared as he called out, Proceed! The two men who had brought the contraption on stage now pulled out the pins and hastened away. Dramatis Personae, Cole. While both Silmoral and Nepul were coastal cities, only Nepul really had a fishing industry. Part of what made Silmoral so defensible also made it harder for that kind of industry. Treacherous rocky reefs hid just below the waterline at the base of Whitestone Cliff, so most of the fish that was consumed in the city was actually caught and then smoked or salted in Clearwater, Rayford, or Nepul. Many homes in Nepul had a hook installed in their fireplaces solely for the purpose of smoking fish. Homes in Silmoral didn't have anything like that. After he moved to the capital with Tamlin, Cole found he missed the taste of good, freshly caught fish more and more. Baked trout, poached bullhead, broiled perch, they were all his favorite. But his favorite of favorites was fried catfish. He had a friend named Zeb who worked as a cook at the Laughing Maiden Inn by the coast in Nepul. The establishment was only nominally an inn. It only had one room for rent on the second floor and it was always vacant. Despite this, the Laughing Maiden Inn did not struggle as a business. It was known as the best fish fry in Nepul, and it was hard to get a table there no matter the season or day of the week. Zeb would sometimes hire Cole to help him in the kitchen during festivals or weddings or other occasions when business became unmanageable for a single cook. Cole always took these jobs when they were offered. The extra money was nice, though he didn't really need it. Working on his parents' farm provided him with everything he needed, and, at least at that point in his life, he had no desire or expectation to ever leave the farm. No, Cole took these jobs because when the work was finished for the evening, he and Zeb would feast on fried catfish until their stomachs hurt. Zeb liked to tell stories as he worked, too. Cole sometimes wondered if he were being hired for his companionship as much as his willingness to wash cups and plates for hours on end. Though only ten years older than Cole, Zeb had an encyclopedic knowledge of the history of Nepul, and most of his stories dealt on that subject. Now most credit Thury with bringing Nepul into the Greater Kingdom, but the real story began long before. You see, old King Murak's power passed to his daughter, who became Queen Adelith, 
She was the one who built a road between here and the capital, you know. Zeb had paused during his storytelling to drizzle butter over the trout before it went into the clay oven. Now, of course, Burdum and Ildris and Sayega, they all contributed too, though they tended to be known for other things. By the time Thurry came to power, Nepule was already lying at Silmaril's feet, like an obedient dog. Cole had asked him about King Vincis, and Zeb had chided him, saying, Oh, your history is lacking, my friend. Vincis came much later on, and he didn't give two farts about Nepule, or any of the outer towns for that matter. He was too busy catching Zacian spies and boiling them in oil. Cole remembered so clearly how Zeb had illustrated his story by plunging a skewer of catfish into a pot of oil. Bubbles immediately formed around the pieces of fish as the oil did its work. And while a mouth-watering smell filled the kitchen, Cole was forced to imagine captured Zations being boiled alive and screaming away their last breaths. Zeb had bounced his eyebrows and removed the skewer, which now supported a row of golden brown morsels. And King Vincis? He was doing that kind of thing long before he became known as the cruelest ruler we've ever known. He sniffed at the skewered fish and smiled approvingly. Ah, cooked perfectly. Chapter 19, Part 2, Day 53, Afternoon. Party Status. The party's status is unchanged. When the workers pulled out the pins that held the trough's trapdoor bottom shut, the effect on the prisoners was instant. The oil in it was heavy, as were the long metal doors now that they were no longer held in place. This was a devilish and cruel punishment. If any one of the prisoners weakened and lowered their own pole, the others would be unable to bear the weight. The trapdoors would open, and boiling oil would rain down upon them. They must have understood something of what was happening, for, as one, they pushed their poles up, desperately trying to hold the doors shut. Their muscles flexed as their faces contorted in pain. Then, a drop of oil that had seeped out despite their efforts fell on the middle prisoner. He howled in agony, though to his credit he did not let go of his pole. Cole could see that these poor wretches would not last another minute before their arms or legs gave out, and that the moment one of them stopped supporting a share of the weight, the others wouldn't stand a chance. It was really just a matter of time. If they hadn't been blindfolded, they might have seen an opportunity to try to knock the oil trap on stilts backward and into the assembled guard. But in their current situation, they were in far too much pain and panic to act in concert. The apparatus on the stage had been contrived to prolong the agony of the king's enemies and to make a show of it, but the effect on the audience was not what Bellic had hoped for. The crowd at first went strangely silent, and for a few moments, Burton Square was only filled with the sounds of pain and struggle from the stage. Whatever ghoulish appetite for blood and death they had did not include, it appeared, torture to this extreme. Someone booed, and then a smattering of hoots, jeers, and condemnations followed. Then a rock sailed through the air, aimed at the magistrate. Several pieces of garbage were launched at the tightly packed guards after that. By now, the prisoners shook with the effort of keeping the trough doors above their heads shut. A second, bigger drop of oil seeped through and landed on a prisoner to the far right. She let loose a full-throated scream, and Cole knew it would all be over soon. A leather shoe sailed over his head and through the air at the magistrate, who sneered and ducked the second missile. A man in the back called for mercy, and the cry was taken up by several others. There was no more time to lose. Cole cocked back his arm and hurled the cup containing the pharaoh Mandakare into the left phalanx of the city watchman. You might well wonder, what exactly can a rust monster do? 
These creatures have quite a strange stat block. They have an AC of 18, that's the equivalent of plate and shield. On top of that, with 5 hit dice, they have hit points to spare. I won't bother rolling up the hit points for this creature, as it's about to face off against a hundred men-at-arms. It'll take them a while to kill it, but kill it they will, eventually. There's no other realistic outcome. Of course, what's really interesting about the Rust Monster is its special ability. When its antenna touch metal, or even when metal touches the creature, such as during an attack, that metal automatically rusts. There's no saving through to avoid this effect, and, most interesting of all, there's no limit given as to how much metal can be destroyed this way, and this implies, at least to me, that the size of the creature makes no difference. A rust monster shrunken small enough to fit into a cup can cause as much damage as a full-sized creature, providing the opportunities are there. And in this situation, the opportunities are abundant. I've never had anything like this happen in a game before. It is going to be insane. Now, you might also be wondering, where are Yellowfly and Catsbane right now? We know where Cole is, right in the front row. By now, Shawnee will be almost back at the Dunwich Cidery Company. When she gets there, she'll drop off the cart, pay Hetty five gold pieces for depriving her family of a good day of business, and then leave, headed for their apartments. At home, she'll find Catsbane with his nose in a book. The items he took from Carrick's tower are on the table in front of him. When all their party is back together, he has some disturbing news to share about one of those items, but that's for later on. Since Catsbane already has a price on his head, there was never any reason for him to secure an alibi. Walking off in the direction of Exavion the Red's tower was enough. But for Yellowfly, the situation is different. He wanted to be seen out in public. To this end, he has spent the day at the Great Cathedral of Vesaluna, praying silently for his companion's success. Around noon, he asks one of the presiding clerics if he could take private counsel, and spends a half hour one-on-one -on -one with the priest, spinning a nonsense story about a crisis of faith. In truth, Yellowfly's faith is strong, though he tends to pray to whichever deity he thinks might be listening. It's about time to return to the action, but now I'm wondering something. Will Yellowfly's prayers be answered? Here's a d20. I'm going to roll it just to see how crazy things are going to get. I think there's a minimum level of success guaranteed here, so even on a roll of a 1 or a 2, things will still go badly for the assembled guards. But with a higher roll, there's the potential here for much more than just a few dozen sets of ruined chain mail. Here's my roll. The higher the number, the greater the chaos. I rolled a 14. Chapter 19, Part 3, Day 53, Afternoon. Party Status. The party status is unchanged. The effect was not instant. At first, there was simply movement from the left phalanx a ripple in the formation of men as they stood at attention and a few yelps of honest surprise. Then the rust became visible from the audience. It spread through the ranks of guards like a corruption. The yelps became cries of shock and even fear. The phalanx bulged and then contracted around a central point as the guards figured out what was causing the phenomenon and responded to the threat in their midst. But this only made the corruption spread faster. Large swaths of brown painted their numbers. The smell of rust became noticeable then, and Cole had time to think that it reminded him somehow of the smell of blood before a second upset occurred. While Bellic and his left phalanx discovered and dealt with the cause of their armor and weapons oxidizing into useless junk, the church launched its second phase. Two confederates near the front of the stage literally leapt into action. Each had a hood pulled up and scarves around their faces, but Cole recognized one of them anyway. She had stood out from the crowd simply for how ugly she was, if he were being honest. 
the ugly girl and her compatriot, a young man, vaulted onto the stage and, in concert, pushed the oil trough backwards and into the tightly packed soldiers that now stood behind the stage. All the while, the magistrate looked on dumbly, his eyes bulging with incredulity, but he did not move an inch to interfere. The oil trough landed with a splash and a new wave of screaming. The odor of rust was instantly replaced by a different one, frying flesh. Horribly, it reminded Cole of a different smell as well. Many an evening, his parents had prepared bacon for their dinner. The left phalanx and the troops behind the stage were now in total chaos. Sindwan had his longsword in the air and was yelling directions. He still held his right flank steady, but it was clear at a glance that it wouldn't hold long. The crowd was beginning to break apart now. Both hooded church members on the stage wasted no time in escaping, followed closely by the prisoners, who, most of them in utter panic, had yanked off their blindfolds and thrown themselves into the crowd. Soon the stage was empty save for the magistrate, who still stood, stock still and blank-faced, with his mouth opening and closing the way a fish's does. The hundreds of people in Burton Square heaved once more, like the sea in a storm, and then broke apart. Cole ran with them, directly away from the stage. Most of them were headed for the Thury Gate. There would only be a couple of guards there, and they wouldn't be able to hold back the runners. Now was the chance to get away, before Bellic's guards killed the Rust Monster, before they regrouped, organized, and sealed all the city gates. Cole ran as fast as his feet would carry him, passing some and being passed by others. A hundred men and women sprinted down the road together, trailing a plume of dust. Cole's legs pumped, as did his heart. His legs burned. It was the greatest moment of his life. Welcome, Sojourners. You have found yourself a cozy place at Sojourners Awake. I'm Jonathan, and together we produce audio dramas while playing our favorite 5th edition role-playing game. Our stories of epic fantasy are told in the homebrewed world of Bonsarel. Heroes like Felthrin Grovelor, The Bookends, and Traina the Dryad all come to life in this podcast. We focus on actual play storytelling while trimming all of the table talk and rules discussion in post. Instead, we focus on forming a compelling narrative together as players, with the end result being a wonderful audio drama which you can enjoy. So visit Sojourners Awake today, and as always, may your story continue. I hope it's clear what I chose to do in lieu of rolling on my complications table for the previous scene. The main thing, of course, is that instead of beheadings, which happen one at a time, I put all the prisoners in immediate peril. The way the narrative went, perhaps that did not end up being so problematic. In fact, the phase two church members were even able to use it to their advantage when they toppled it backwards into those unlucky men-at-arms who were behind the stage. The second decision was that the king would not be present, which is too bad for the church, as they would have liked to publicly embarrass the monarch if they could have. I don't want to end the scene feeling that I let the companion succeed too easily, so I think I'm going to make one more die roll. Previously, I'd mentioned that Yellowfly wanted to avoid Bellic's spies. That's why the companions made their plans from the safe distance of the sidery rooftop, and that's why only Cole could safely remain in Burton Square. As a worldly and practical man, I'm sure the Yellowfly was right to assume there would be spies there, maybe even a lot of them. If so, is there any chance that anyone would have seen Cole throw the cup containing the Rust Monster? I think it's pretty unlikely, but not impossible. I'm going to give it another 1 in 6 chance. A roll of 1 on my d6 means that Cole was somehow identified and followed. 
Here's the roll. Well, okay then. Chapter 19, Part 4, Day 53, Night, Party Status, Yellowfly, 19 of 19 hit points, Cole, 12 of 12, Shawnee, 13 of 13, Catsbane, 6 of 6. Spells available. Catsbane has memorized Magic Missile. The Owl and Bear Tavern could only just barely, if you'll pardon the pun, be called a tavern at all. It only had three tables, and there was no bar. Its tiny kitchen doubled as a pantry, and toilet, and storage room. The main room was much too small to feature a stage, so performers, when there were any, would stand on a flat square of rough-cut timber. The rest of the floor was dirt. Walls were made of wattle and daub, and the roof was thatch. Despite all these shortcomings, Yellowfly loved the little place and was fond of its owner. The tavern master was called Torley. He was a rough-handed Nepulic man of about fifty years. Torley stood a scant five foot three and wore a dirty beard of yellow streaked with white. He might have passed for a dwarf to someone who had never met an actual member of that race. Yellowfly delighted in teasing him. I see you've still no bar, Torley, and it's for the best. If you built one and stood behind it like a proper tavern keeper, we'd only ever see the top of your head. Always as sharp as mustard, as always. Now why don't you shut up? I didn't hire these two fools to be ignored. Torley was referring to a pair of scruffy musicians who were obviously drunk and looked like they might have trouble producing actual music. They drained their cups before hoisting their stringed instruments and lurching through a little piece. Catsbane didn't recognize the tune. Cole did, and he was pretty sure they were playing it wrong. for these fools. You're done, you two. Get out of my tavern and don't come back till you've sobered up a bit. Torley turned to the companions, shaking his head and laughing. <laughs> they begged me to hire them, and then they can barely hold their instruments. They'll be holding their instruments in the alley right about now, joked Shawnee. That skinny one could barely sit through his own song. <laughs> Yellowfly laughed at that. He was feeling very much at home and enjoying himself. He figured that, even though they were almost broke, they still deserved to celebrate tonight. The cups, tables, and even the walls were dirty. The ambiance was non-existent, but the food and the beer were cheap, if not very good, so he had ordered a lot of it. I'm surprised the place hasn't burned down, remarked Cole, looking at the low-hanging thatch. No, replied Yellowfly. That's a solidly built fireplace there. Tolly made it himself. Built it as soon as he bought this place, actually. He's a good, hard-working type, he is. My thanks to Vesaluna that I'm not, snickered Shane. Here's to a life of thievery, rebellion, and mischief. Thievery, rebellion, and mischief, echoed the others. Raising their drinks, they touched cups and drank deeply. 
Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore, and Happy New Year, everybody. I want to thank you, the listeners, for all your continued support. Can you believe that the show has surpassed a quarter of a million downloads? So many of you have recommended Tale of the Manticore or liked or retweeted episode announcements on Twitter. A lot of you have picked up Pendulum, One Shot in the Dark, or Encyclopedia Manticorica on DriveThruRPG. And as always, I am very grateful for every single rating and review. Speaking of, here's another one of those generous reviews. This one is from Churchy71. Churchy71 writes, Great idea for a podcast. I enjoy the comedy roleplay podcast, but prefer ones like this. The only other one I've found is Dark Dice. Keep up the great work. I'm only up to episode 7, and I'm hooked. Thanks so much for that very kind review, Churchy71. I'm with you. I enjoy comedy RPG podcasts, but the serious toned ones, well, that's where my heart is. There aren't a lot of us doing it, but there are some. Let me recommend The Iron Realm, Legend of the Bones, Tales of Mistara, and Errant Adventures, to name a few off the top of my head. Be sure to check them out. They each do it differently, but it's all good. My thanks also go to the folks who led their voices to the show. Back in the role of the magistrate is Peter from System Switch. System Switch is available everywhere you find podcasts. It has short season runs and changes game systems every time. Brian Cook plays Zeb, the cook, at the Laughing Maiden in Fish Fry. Finally, join in the cast in the role of Torley, the tavern keeper of the Owl and Bear. He's Cody McLean. All three of you did a fantastic job, and I'm so happy to have you on board. Thanks so much, Peter, Brian, and Cody. For listeners who use socials and would like to reach out, I'm on the usual ones, at Manticore Tale on Twitter and Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram. And there's always email. Write in with your comments or questions to taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. The adventure will continue into 2023 on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. A Theater in the Dark creates original audio fiction, homegrown award-winning audio plays, whether you want to track down suspects... Like a ripped-up newspaper, we were only getting half the story. Escape those pesky Martians... A metal Martian tripod. A hundred feet high, rolling forth at a terrific speed. Or hunt that dreaded white whale... It's a white whale, I say, a white whale. Skin your eyes for a look sharp for white water if you see but a bubble men sing out. You can journey into the dark with A Theater in the Dark, stories through sound. Find us by searching A Theater in the Dark wherever you get your podcasts or online at atheaterinthedark.com.